0: Bibles, if you would, and open them to the epistle of 1 John, chapter 4. And uh, before we get into the message tonight, I want us to read the first part of this chapter, and this will be our text for several lessons in the next few weeks. I know some of you are relieved that we're finally getting through with chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4, and we're going to spend some time in chapter 4. So if you look at First John chapter four, beginning in verse number one, it says, "Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error." It's quite an interesting journey, I think, that we've taken thus far in this letter of 1 John. I know many of you have read this letter many different times, and there are certain verses that we're drawn to that we refer back to on many different occasions as we uh, look into other messages and we're thinking about other subjects, Uh, familiar passages like chapter 1 and verse number 9, and we read often chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, uh, chapters chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, and many people are very interested in the controversy surrounding verse number 7 in 1 John chapter 5. And so there are certain parts of this letter that we look at often. We look at them repeatedly, but most people, and probably most of you, have really not read 1 John comprehensively enough to really consider how all of the information that we find here fits together. John's primary or his major premise is in chapter 5 verse number 13 where he tells us that the purpose of this letter is for the recipients to be solid in their faith and to know that they have eternal life sure that their faith leads them to eternal life and getting to that point is, is not really a, a simplified process as we look in First John. There are recycling themes that are here, and each time that you come to one of those themes, each time we touch on them, there's another layer of truth that's underneath it. Now, to keep all of that recycling in focus takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of study, and I think it requires uh, intense focus for us to be able to do that. And we do need to understand that wherever we read in the Bible, we're always reading God's words. The Bible is not meant to be mystifying to us. God is not trying to confuse us with the Word. But at the same time, the Scriptures are not understandable unless we're willing to take the time to look into them, willing to take time and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and show us what the Word means. Now, because the Bible is, is so intense... God has devised a system to aid our understanding. Now, the system itself is quite simple, even though the the Scriptures themselves may not be. Uh, There are pastors and teachers. This this is God's system. Pastors and teachers that explain the Bible. Uh, These are people that have spent time in the Bible in order to gain greater understanding. And guess who it was that helped them to gain that understanding? Other pastors and teachers. That's what's gone on for centuries. And so that process has been repeated over and over again for thousands of years. It began with Jesus when he started teaching his apostles. That's what we're studying in uh, Matthew on Sunday morning. Jesus teaching the apostles, showing him the word. And those apostles became the foundation of the church. Now, the first chapter in this epistle begins this way. John says in the first chapter, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Those verses are a declaration of the authority of the apostles. And the truth that we have, that we preach tonight, comes from them. Now, when Paul was instructing Timothy... A man who was a young pastor and needed help in, in understanding the Word of God and knowing what to do as a pastor, here's what Paul told him in Second Timothy chapter two. He said, "Thou, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also." That's the system. People who have learned the word of God teaching others the same truths also. Now, the system then is not very complicated. We use it every day in secular education. Teachers that have been taught teach others that have not been taught. And the student assumes that the teacher is the authority on the subject that he's teaching on. And so what a student does, he takes the teacher's word and he trusts him that he's speaking the truth. But what happens... ...if the teacher is skewed. And what happens if the teacher is giving out false information? Well, the student doesn't know that. And so he takes that false information in. He takes it as truth. He believes it. And then he passes the same information along to others. Nearly 100 years ago, the theory of evolution made its way into our educational system. And it was taught over and over and over again until it's hard today to find anyone who doesn't believe that evolution is a fact. Now, it doesn't matter that it hasn't been proved. It doesn't matter that there's not any real evidence for it. It just got told and retold enough times that people began to believe it, so that today, if you say that you don't believe in it, then people think you're really a nutcase. And you can see that the issue here is the teacher. The teacher has to be right, or the students receive the wrong information. Now, when we're talking about the secular world... Receiving wrong information can hurt you. I mean, it might hurt you financially. If you get wrong information about investments or wrong information about insurance, wrong information about those kinds of things, it'll hurt you financially. Wrong information can hurt you socially. I mean, there are are often hurtful consequences from receiving the wrong information. But when it comes to spiritual matters, this is a much more serious issue because wrong information will not only hurt you in this life, but you take what you hear beyond the grave. And it can determine your eternal destiny. And so wrong information can be utterly devastating. Now, you might might receive wrong information from one of your teachers in school and acting on that bad information could maybe cause you to lose your life, might cause someone else to lose theirs. You take somebody who's in a teaching hospital or in a medical center and, and a teacher teaches an intern a wrong procedure and he tries that out on somebody, he might kill him by receiving the wrong information. But again, the wrong information in the spiritual world is a not just a life and death issue, not a physical life and death issue. It is an eternal life and death issue. It's far more serious because... Receiving that wrong information has to do with your soul. It's much worse than getting the wrong thing out of the Roanoke Park school system. And so in religious matters, a teacher has to be right. Eternal souls are hanging in the balance. Now, there's one author who said this very well. He said, error is never benign. Now, when you go to a doctor and he tells you that there's a mass growing in your body and he wants to biopsy that, it's always good news when he comes back and says, well, that tumor is benign. Spiritual error is never benign. It's never that way. Here's what Paul said also in Second Timothy. He said, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. Now that means their word will eat as a gangrene. Or if you wanted to put it in terms that we might even understand it a little bit better today, it eats like a cancer. And unless you get rid of that cancer, it will kill you. Well, who's responsible for the cancer? That's the subject of the verses that we're reading tonight. It's always been a problem since day one. There's truth and error. There are those that teach truth and those that teach lies. There are true prophets and there are false prophets. Well, why is this so important to John in this particular letter? Well, this is where we'll we'll start tonight and spend some time with this. And that's the context of, of John's teaching. In verse 13 of the fifth chapter, I said a moment ago, this is the key verse. John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now there, we see that there is a problem uh, with the people that John's writing to. They were unsure of eternal life. They were in danger of believing the wrong things about the Son of God. Now, there's one key central issue in Christianity that must be right. Now, you can take wrong turns. You might get confused on some doctrines. But there's one issue that you cannot be wrong about. You have to know the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, goodness knows there's a lot of differences between Christians. Uh, these are not unimportant doctrines, but we have differences in some things. There are, there are differences in what some Christians believe about baptism. There are Christians who believe in infant baptism. And you can be wrong about that in some ways, not all ways, but in some ways. And that's not going to keep you from being a Christian. Now, if you believe that 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 baptism saves you, that would be another matter. But for those who don't believe that infant baptism saves, that's not a salvational issue. It's, you have you should believe the right thing about it, but you're not going to, you're not going to fail to be a Christian if you're wrong about baptism. And we have differences of opinion concerning ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. You can miss some of those truths. But that's not going to keep you from being a Christian. We have differences with people about the correct Bible translation that we ought to use. But you could use an NIV. You could use an ESV or something else. I don't recommend it, but it's not going to keep you from being a Christian. But here is one issue that you cannot miss. The central issue is Christ. He is Christianity. And if you don't know the truth about him, you can't be a Christian. Now, in the next message, which... It's about a month away from now. I'm, I'm going to nail down some of these specific doctrines about Christ. and I'm going to touch on some of those things that John, um, or that we need to deal with concerning uh, the doctrine of Christology. And we'll look at that a little bit later on. But we're going to look at uh, some things here tonight. Because in this, in this letter, it's apparent that there were attacks on deity. This is one of the recycling themes that we see throughout 1 John. The letter begins, what I just read you a moment ago, uh, with emphasis on seeing Christ. John seeing Christ, John speaking with him, John touching him. That's how he knew and could tell tell us who Christ is. And then we see this again, uh, the deity of Christ in chapter 3, verse number 2, where John says that one day we're going to be like him. He repeats that in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, speaking on the same subject in verse 10, verse 13, and again in verse number 20. So there was an issue concerning the deity of Christ, and somebody was handing out false information. And that false information was hurting the church spiritually, and eventually it would ruin the ability for them to preach the gospel, for people to believe the gospel and to be saved. I mean, the gospel is Christ. And so if you pervert anything about the work and the person of Christ, then you no longer have the gospel. What we've discussed previously, going all the way back to the beginning of the letter mostly, uh, part of the issue that was going on in this church that John is writing toward these people, John does not tell us directly what the problem is, but we know that by looking at his arguments, just looking at what he has to say in the arguments, and, and then looking at the history of the time, that there was a group called the Gnostics. And they were teaching wrongly about the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Now, here in verse number 2 that we've read tonight, uh, our text identifies one of those heresies. He says, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Now, there is no mistaking that John taught the deity of Christ. So the question here is, did Christ come in the flesh? Charles Harold Dodd wrote, The fundamental doctrine of Judaism is monotheism. No utterance, however inspired, which contradicts the principle of monotheism can be accepted as true prophecy. The fundamental doctrine of Christianity is the incarnation. No utterance, however inspired, which denies the reality of the incarnation can be accepted by Christians as true prophecy. Well, looking back at what we've already studied, there were multiple errors in Gnostic teaching about the incarnation and Gnosticism is kind of hard to define precisely because there were so many branches of it and there were various doctrines that they taught and some of them were in disagreement with each other but there are subheadings under this thing of Gnosticism such as Docetism and this is where uh, the, the people were teaching that Christ was not really flesh at all that he was just an illusion it seemed like he was in the flesh Cyrinthus, who is a contemporary of John, taught that God came and took over a man's body. Now, the man's name was Jesus, and when Jesus was baptized, that's when God came into him. And then just before the crucifixion, God left him. In other words, God used the body of a man, but he wasn't actually the God-man. There was no union between God and man. Now, both of those are denial of the incarnation. It's denial of the virgin birth and what's known as the hypostatic union. And we see those same errors today in, in Mormonism. We see it with Jehovah Witnesses. It's not a new error. There's someone who said, has said that all of the false teachings about Christ had come by the end of the first and the second century so that we see no new errors today. Now, I have a lot more to say about doctrinal errors in that next message when we come back. But I just want to show you tonight that this context for chapter 4 is John's current situation concerning the errors on the deity of Christ. Now, secondly, and very important to understand as the cause of these errors, is the activity of demons. Uh, False teaching does not just happen. It doesn't just fall out of the sky somewhere. There's a source to it. And we have to be acutely aware of that source. He says in verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now he says the cause of this is spirits. Now he doesn't mean demon rum. And uh, it's kind of interesting, I think, that liquor is called spirits. You might want to think about that for a while. But the cause of false doctrines is spirits. The influence of false doctrine and false teachers is a misinformation campaign that is conducted by spirits. Well, what spirits? Well, if you go back to the end of chapter 3, John says in the 24th verse, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. And now the Spirit that he's speaking of there is the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of God. But John says that there are other spirits because he tells us here, try the spirits to see whether they are of God. And so that tells us there are two spirits that operate in the world. Either the spirit is the Holy Spirit, which is singular, or there are spirits, plural, that are not of God. And so there's a category of one. The Holy Spirit, that's God. And then there's another category of multiple spirits. And we don't know how many there are of these. And they're not of God. These are spirits that are opposed to God. Now that puts preachers, many preachers, in an uncomfortable position. Either you have to identify other preachers and teachers and their practices as being of God. Or they have to be spirits which John has already identified here as Antichrist. Now, I don't think we have to uh, spend a lot of time here trying to figure out what John means by this. I think you've got the picture. He's either talking about the Holy Spirit or he's talking about Satan. And he's speaking about Satan's demons. And there are many preachers that simply do not want to get into this. And they don't want to discuss doctrine. They don't want to come down hard on anybody because to say that there is someone that's teaching a false doctrine is to say that their doctrine comes from demons. And that's about as simple as you can put it. That's as true as you can say it. John says it here very simply. A false doctrine and a false prophet is directly linked to demons. And so you might ask me things like, well, what do you think about speaking in tongues? Well, that's just many of the wrong activities that we see today. And I don't have any choice. If I disagree with that and I say that I don't believe that the Bible teaches this, then I don't have any other choice than to say it's demonic activity. There's only two spirits that operate in the world. If it's not a true spirit, it has to be denom- demonic activity. Now, folks, that's not going to sit well with the Ministerial Association here in Rona Park. I'll tell you that right now. It, it, people are not going to like this. If I say that Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses have a doctrine of demons, most people are not going to like that. But it's very clear here. There are two types of spirit. Either the doctrine is of God or it comes from the devil chapter 4 tells us here we have to discern which is which now let me back up here just a minute to the beginning of the message Uh, the way that we have received correct doctrine is from Jesus and the apostles the word was committed to faithful teachers it comes down from generation to generation until that truth reaches us today well if you're Satan and you hate God then what do you want to do well you want to infiltrate You want to get into that flowing stream of true teachers, and you want to put a false one in there. And the false teacher perverts every student that follows. Now, the student, as we mentioned before, is ignorant. He doesn't know yet what the truth of the matter is. And so the student gulps up everything that's dropped into his mouth. He swallows it all, unless he does one thing. And that is to very carefully examine everything that he hears or if you want to call it the food that he eats, very carefully examines it before he eats it. Now that is what John is telling us to do. Everything that you hear is subject to examination. Now what Satan is forever trying to do is to drop those morsels of untruths into your mouth, And of course, actually, we're talking about the brain. And you have to be aware that this is what Satan does. He never stops perverting truth. This is a daily activity. This is what he does all of the time. And so you have to stop and examine whether the doctrines that you hear and whether the teacher that's teaching you is from God or is that from the devil. And you have to do that with me. And I invite you to do that with me. I know that not every pastor and teacher would say that. I know fundamental Baptist pastors that say, don't ever question what I teach you. Don't question me. I'm the pastor, so you believe me and you do it. Well, I think that you ought to be respectful. But if I ever told you, believe something because I said it, that you don't really need to study this because I've studied it for you, then you need to get somebody else to teach you because that means that I'm a false teacher. See, that's a characteristic of false teachers. They don't like the scrutiny. There are two axioms that you need to wrap your head around. And always remember these. The first one is, a true teaching will always stand the test of biblical examination. A false one never will. A true teaching will always stand the test of biblical examination. A false one never will. And as a corollary to that, a true teacher will invite examination. A false prophet never will. Now, that's not to say that a false prophet won't defend his doctrine. He'll twist and he'll pervert Scripture. He'll search high and low to find something that supports what he teaches. And quite frankly, folks, you can add to this one more axiom that you really do need to remember, and that's this. Deceivers are better at deceiving than most Christians are at discerning. Deceivers are better at deceiving than most Christians are about discerning. And so that means that you have got to stay on your toes. You've got to stay in the Word of God. And this is really a problem when people fall prey to a false teacher before they ever get grounded in the truth. And so as a general rule, you that are blessed enough to be made aware of what you need to look out for, you need to check me out too. And I might hesitatingly add this, that if you find that I'm consistent, that I'm usually or hopefully always telling you the truth, and your first assumption would not be, well, he must be lying to us. That's not your first assumption. Your first assumption that it is truth. But you're not going to offend me. You never will by delving deeper into any subject that I teach. I'm not afraid of you doing that. If you have questions, come and ask me about it. You know that I've never been afraid or never have turned down people asking questions. Now, the issue here with John... Is that this is not some minor subtlety of doctrine that he's dealing with. This is not just a little nuance of Christianity. This is a core issue of Christianity. Who is Christ? What is his nature? What did he do? And we would think that this is such a high marker that nobody could miss this. I mean, surely they ought to understand that if we're talking about Christianity, we've got to be talking about what do you believe about Christ? Who is he? What did he do? What's his nature? You think that that's such a high marker, nobody can miss it. Now, John's very clear about this. He says, try the spirits whether they are of God. You think that nobody could miss this, but the truth is, folks, Christianity has become so watered down that anybody that has a name tag that says Christian on it or has that fish on the car, like we talked about Sunday, they've got a cross around their neck. If they've got church on the door, if they've got iglesia on the door, it must be something that's Christian. Well, John's clear about it, as I said. Try the spirits whether they are of God. This is not inconsequential. He's telling us that false teachers have a direct link to Satan. They work under Satan's direction, and the purpose is to destroy truth. Nobody's saved by a lie. Satan knows that. Nobody has ever been saved by a lie. And all of these lies are demonic demonic activity. Now, let me show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go over there for just a minute. And as you're turning there... Let's, let's be reminded of this, that, that any false teaching, no matter who teaches it, it has one common source, that's the devil. Now, if you'll look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 14, Paul is dealing with a pagan society. The, these are Christians that have come out of paganism. And, and don't mistake that either. False Christianity is paganism because it worships a false god. So there was a controversy among the Corinthian Christians about eating meat that was offered to idols. Pagan society, this goes on around them all the time, so they have a question about whether it's all right to eat meat that's been offered to idols. Also a question about, is it all right if we attend the pagan feast? Now, Paul was one of those crazy Christians that was concerned about associations. Kind of a separatist, if you will, putting it kind of mildly. And he says in verse number 14, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So Paul wasn't very big on this. Let's all get together. Let's all worship because we're worshiping the same God. doesn't matter what you really call him. doesn't matter what you call God or who you think God is. We're all worshiping the one God. Paul would never stand for that. He goes on to the next verses and he talks about communion. And he says, when we come together at the Lord's table, our fellowship together... The fact that we are meeting together in the church around the Lord's table must mean that we have fellowship with God. And then he compares that to Israel offering sacrifices to Jehovah God. He says in verse 18, Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacri- sacrifices partakers of the altar. And what he means is if all the Israelites come and they worship at the altar of God and they eat uh, the peace offering then they're acknowledging that they're worshiping the same one true Jehovah God. Now notice verses 19 and 20. What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Now there Paul's clarifying his position in verse number 19. And he says that I, I'm not saying to you that the idol actually represents a real God. And that's not why I'm comparing eating the Lord's Supper and the sacrifices in Israel. It's the point is not the meat of the idol. The point is the fellowship. Who are you fellowshipping with? And here's the germane point here for our discussion. When the Gentiles worshipped an idol, Paul says they are actually sacrificing to demons. And why does he say that? Because... Behind every false worship, behind every false priest, behind every false doctrine, there are demons. So there are only two spirits that operate in the world. Either that thing is of God, or you have no choice but to name it as the activity of demons. So this is one of the reasons that we sort of hang out alone here at Brian Baptist. It's why we're different from other churches that are around, because we don't throw doctrine to the wind. We don't say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your doctrines are. No, folks, we believe the doctrine is extremely important because the doctrine tells whether you are worshiping God or whether you're worshiping demons. I mean, this is as simple as it gets. I mean, I don't know how to explain it to you any other way. The doctrine is important to tell who we are worshiping. So we can't say, let's don't teach doctrine. Let's don't be sticklers about doctrine. You can't do it because it's the identifier between what's true and what's false. Now, it sounds kind of harsh for for somebody to say that, but John here is not dealing with brazen pagans like Paul was. He's dealing with those that have slid under the banner of Christianity. He's talking about people that have the same name, people that have church on the door, people that have Christ in the name. But they don't actually worship the same God. In other words, he's saying they are Christians in name only. Christians in name only, what's that? That's a chino. Christians in name only. And if they wore chino uniforms, if they all wore the same uniform, it'd be easy to identify them. They aren't Christians. They have the doctrines of devils. Now, let me get a little bit blunder for you. Some actually do have a uniform. White shirts, black ties, and of all things, they've got a name tag that they wear. And you go down the street, just a few blocks here, and, and some people won't like me to say it, but you see the Mormon church, and you can't say anything about that, but that is a temple for the worship of demons. How do I know that? How do I, why could I say that? John spells it out very clearly for us in verse 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Where have you have heard that it should come? And even now is it already in the world? Now I want you to notice something there. When John says Jesus Christ, he means everything that goes with that name. And you need to understand, what is it that goes with the name Jesus Christ? Well, he's the co-eternal, co-existent, second person of the Trinity. And if you don't believe that he's the creator of all things visible and invisible, that he's co-substantial with the Father, John says, you are an antichrist. And there's the basis for all the errors of Mormonism. They do not meet the criteria of verse number 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. You have to take everything that goes with the name Jesus Christ. And so you can take what I've said here and you can apply it to all false prophets. If they don't teach the truth about Christ, then they're teaching the doctrines of demons. Now, I think most of you recognize that when we talk about Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses and the cults like this, I mean, almost always there's an error on the deity of Christ. These people are non-Trinitarian. Now, of course, we believe the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. These people are are non-Trinitarian. And so you would say, well, what about Roman Catholicism? Roman Catholicism teaches Trinitarian doctrine. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that tonight, but they don't preach the same Christ that we preach. We preach an all-sufficient Savior. We preach a Savior who, by his own blood, paid the entire debt of the believer's sin. But Roman Catholicism says that you have to help pay that debt, that you have to improve upon grace by your works. Now, what that does is to dump dirt on the name of Christ. It's not the same Christ. It's a doctrine of demons. Now, let me go on, and we'll quickly wrap this up with a third point, and that's the adaptability of the devil. The adaptability of the devil. Now, the context that we're talking about here is false teaching about Christ. Satan adjusts his methods to fit the times. He adapts the doctrine to fit the people that he's trying to corrupt. An example of that would be to compare the way that he worked in the Old Testament with how he works in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, there wasn't this issue of dealing with the deity and the humanity of Christ. I mean, that, that's not something that we're going to dig out of Israel's worship in the Old Testament to try to nail down that doctrine. You're not dealing with that. There wasn't an issue of infant baptism for the purpose of washing away original sin. That, you're not going to find that in the Old Testament. But there was an issue of Israel constantly chasing after false gods, of sacrificing in groves. And how many of you know what a grove is, what we're talking about? Good, some of you know that. Sacrificing in the groves. They were, these are the groves of trees, the high places that they would sacrifice in, rather than sacrificing in Jerusalem at the temple where they were supposed to. So that was always a problem, the groves that they made their sacrifice in. They had a problem sacrificing their children, and burning them in the fires to Molech. There was an issue of sexual perversion in in, uh, worshiping the fertility god, Baal, in the cult of Baal. So Satan sent his false prophets to deceive the people on those issues. And so for every Jeremiah, you find a hundred lying prophets. And for every Elijah, you find 450 prophets of Baal. For every Daniel, there are hundreds of soothsaying Chaldeans. You see, the devil is just adaptable to the situation. Now, in the New Testament, there's a warning about false Christ. And the devil is constantly trying to pervert the doctrine of Christ. Now, these are generally termed in the New Testament as antichrist. Jesus said... Matthew 24, let me, let me just say this too. You know, we've, we've, we had this discussion in our study of Revelation that when we're talking about Antichrist, we're not talking about here about the one big Antichrist that's coming at the end. This is the doctrine of devils, the spirit of devils. Anybody who has that has the spirit of Antichrist, the one that's coming. And there are many of those. Jesus said in Matthew 24, For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, believe it not. Now, the devil is so adaptable that he can almost make, a, make a, an unbeliever out of a believer. Now, the devil can't do that. But if he can do enough signs and wonders so that Christians scratch their heads and they wonder, is that something that God's doing? I mean, if he can do so many signs and wonders that Christians wonder about it, then what do you think that he can do with people who have no spiritual discernment? What is he doing with people that don't know anything about the doctrine of Christ? And so thus you have a thousand denominations that really look good, but there isn't a sound doctrine to be found anywhere. And if they do have a doctrine that's true, it's only bait on the hook. It's just to get you hooked, and then they rip you up and fry you up. Folks, this is how chapter 4 begins. Not many people are going to look at First John and preach it the way that John says it. The false prophet will make his claims, but he will never stand the scrutiny. When they asked Joel Osteen why his books contain so little scripture. And when he was challenged on his knowledge of the scriptures, he said, well, I'm just more of a motivational speaker. That's what you call adaptability. Whatever it takes to motivate you. But I'd rather say, whatever it takes for you to know the real Christ of the Bible. That's what we have to teach. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to be in your presence tonight and look into your word. We realize that what we say is not always popular with people. It's difficult sometimes, but John is so clear in delineating this. How do we know what's true? How do we know what's false? And what we believe makes the difference in our lives and in eternity. Lord, help us to stand for the truth at all times, to identify false doctrine where it is, not be ashamed or afraid to tell people about it. May we always stand upon the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray amen let's play